Well, of course, welcome to the podcast, Cleary Independent. I am Phil Cleary, former footballer, one-time independent member of the Australian Parliament. Today, I've made the trip all the way down the Great Ocean Road. So all you travellers around the world, you know where I am. I've passed Lawn, I've gone to Wye River, and I've found Mike Brady in Wye River. Mike, how are you? I'm great, Phil, and it's uh, lovely to see you so far from home. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, but as you know, I do have a cabin in the Big Four camping ground. I've had it for 20 years, and I do call Wye River home. But anyway, everyone around the world, every traveller, every sports lover knows the MCG. And you light up the MCG on that day when we play Indigenous football, Australian rules, with the song up there, Kazali. Give us a burst of it. Oh, well, I will, yeah, a little bit. I'll just grab my guitar. Well, you work to earn a living. But on weekends comes a time You can do whatever turns you on Go out and clear your mind Me, I like football And there's a lot of things around When you line them up together The footy wins hands down Now there's the chorus which is Up there Kazali In there and fight Well you're going to have to wait bit later in the podcast to hear the rest of We that. will have to wait. You know what? That's a powerful voice you have there, Mike, and I'm going to put it down to the great Irish tradition that you belong to. So let's be clear. Your dad was born in Dublin in 1917, correct? He was. Tell me about him. Who was he? Well, he was an, ex, uh, he was an ex-boxer. Um, he, when he had me, he'd, uh, he was an army champion, boxer. And he taught me to box, which is interesting because I was a skinny coward. And uh, it was always very, uh, I suppose, uh, handy for me growing up in Port Melbourne when we came here. But um, he was an interesting man. He joined the British Army at the outbreak of, just after the outbreak of the Second World War. And I just go there and say all those Irish songs about deriding people who joined the British Army. Mm. Your dad, born in 1917 near Upper Dorset Street, where the Cleary <laughs> clan were a safe house for the Republicans and Maura Cleary yeah. went to jail during the Civil War. So she's there when your dad's born. Yes, and, uh, and 1917 was a difficult time too because the Rising was in 1916. Yeah. Uh, it was a difficult time. I mean, uh, to grow up in, in Dublin was pretty tough. I mean, the British dominated um the, the wealth had been stripped by the landowners and uh, it was a, a difficult time to grow up but there was a lot of singing as there always has been a lot of singing a lot of dancing and my dad sang your dad's first name bob robert robert, robert yeah robert had come from where a long line of dubliners already come from the countryside no but he was born in dublin but he came from the countryside he was born in uh, County Cavan, Cavan, near Bally James Duff. Right. Um, but uh, like a lot of them, he was one of eight boys and one girl, and they all had Irish names except him. There was Christy, Patrick, uh, Seamus. There was all, they, um, they all had, uh, there was a Michael, of course, I was named after. Yeah, because yeah, Robert's not a traditional Irish name. But no. when did he get to England? About 1940, I think he got over there, and he met my mum. 
around about that time too, who was a Londoner. And uh, they, they got married and, uh, in, a, in, a, in a Protestant church because he was Catholic, yeah. But then they got married again a few years later when we went back to Ireland in a Catholic church just to make sure he had a bet each way. So <laughs> did you grow up with a strong sense of the Irish tradition and Irish history and Irish politics? Not a lot, no. Yeah. Um, my father was, an out, was, was really outside the family on that. My family is a very strong Republican family. And I have to say that that was one of the things we fell out over because he, as a soldier went on to quite a big career. He became regimental sergeant major in the Queen's own regiment. I felt uncomfortable with the Union Jacks everywhere and at the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II, which I remember very well, and I would have been four, but I still remember our, our uh, house was draped in red, white and blue and, and Union Jacks everywhere and all the houses were. It was such a big occasion. And I was a little... Just a little bit um, tetchy about that. Yeah, that's, a, that's an aberration. But so let's go to Australia. You end up in Port Melbourne, <laughs> Raglan Street yeah. Housing Commission. Yeah. A renowned place, famous. <laughs> well, it Next was, to the Port Melbourne footy ground. Well, it was just down the road. So the people on Sunday used to walk past our place on the way mm. uh, up Raglan Street, on the way to mm. Williamstown Road. And uh, we were on the corner of Raglan Street and uh, and um, Crockford Street, which becomes Bay Street. But what I used to do, my mum used to make a Sunday roast, always a leg of lamb. And because the people were... <laughs> Because the people were so like, oh, the House Commission people, you know, stay away from them and all that stuff. Um, I thought I'd give them something to look at. So I'd get every every Sunday, I'd get the bone in my mouth about 2.30 when the, the crowd were walking past. And I'd lift the window up and I'd growl at them on the other, a great big bone. My mum used to cry with laughter telling people that. And, uh, and it's, it's a true story, I mean, because... I, I have very fond memories of that housing commission flat because it was the first place we'd ever lived that had an indoor toilet. Uh, it was the first place where we didn't have a coal hole where they dumped. A lot of people in Australia and Melbourne lived the same way, but uh, it was like Buckingham Palace to me. And again, when I talk about how famous it is. It's because there were so many renowned Port Melbourne players mm. who lived around there. Bill Swan was living there uh, uh, just prior to, yeah. around about the same time that you settled there. And he goes on to play 300 VFA games, five premierships, the father of Dane Swan, yeah, the Collingwood champion. Yeah. And so when did you first pick up the guitar or go towards music? Well, in England before we came here, I was a real loner. And I've always been a bit of a loner in, in lots of respects. Um, so I'd stay home and watch uh, the Top of the Pops and, you know, hear Cliff Richard sing. I didn't want to be like Cliff, Cliff Richard, but I loved his band, The Shadows, but I didn't have a guitar. So we came to the migrant hostel and a couple of the kids had guitars. Yeah. And they were wash houses where the women, not the men or the men and women, but the women did all the chores in those days. You know, they gave work all day and then come home and they had to scrub on scrub. On. No washing machines, concrete troughs. Mm -hmm. But by about 6.30, 7 o'clock at night, they were, the, the buildings were empty and they were natural echo chambers. So the kids, like the girls would stand at one end and the boys would stand at the other and we, the girls would sing a song, then we'd sing a song. And then my mate Jimmy Taylor had a guitar and he showed me a couple of chords and I picked it up fairly quickly and I don't know why 
But anyway, I sort of that, that's when I that was probably 1959, 1960. You're around the 10 years of age. Yeah, 11, I think I was. Yeah. yeah. And I think by the time I was 14, I, was, I went professional. <laughs> really? Yeah. Were, did, were you uh, good at the guitar? No. No, I'm, very, I'm still very agri- agricultural, but I could sing. Yes, you can sing. But where did that voice come from, Mike? Well, um, my mum probably summed it up because she had some friends over and I was just getting out of bed about 12 o'clock because I'd been playing the night before and I heard her friend say to her, Hey, Betty, what does your son Michael do? He, he's, he sort of comes in in the middle of the night, then he, then he sleeps till lunchtime, then he goes somewhere and he's out all night again and what does he do? And she said, my mum said, Oh, he thinks he's a singer. And, oh, really, a singer? Oh, is he any good? And there was a pause, and my mum went, no, he's just loud. <laughs> he's just loud. So I, I sang. I, I Didn't I dampen your enthusiasm, though? Were you going to do it despite what your mum said? Oh, no, not at all, not at all. It, it changed my life. I mean, music became my magic carpet. I mean, growing up in Port Melbourne, I'm looking back now, I mean, it was a very tough place, and a lot of people... Went the wrong, took the wrong road, and a lot of people didn't make it through their teen and early twenties. Sadly, there was a there was a, a war that went on for many years, um, and a lot of people got got hurt. Um, so it saved me from all of that. Um, it, the girls liked me, and that was good—a confidence builder. Not that I was that much into girls, but and just tell me, where did you first start playing? Well, give me a couple of the venues around Port Melbourne. Yeah, yeah. The first few venues were the first, the very first paying job. Um, although my dad used to take me to barrels, they'd raise money to bail people out and all that stuff. Um, and my dad used to take me off to barrels and make me play um, to entertain the, all the blokes. All that you know, guzzling beer. But my first real professional job was at St. Joseph's Church Hall in um, uh, Stokes. I think it's on the corner of Stokes Street, um, Port Melbourne. And, and that was my first paying job. And I think I got one pound. One pound. That was a fortune. And then we started a dance at the South Melbourne Life Saving Club. But that turned into a massive brawl about four weeks later. A really big brawl, so we weren't allowed to do that anymore. And I think I got about ten shillings for that. Um, and then I joined a band called the Phantoms in 1964, who'd just come back from touring with the Beatles. And I joined them about four weeks afterwards. And uh, I, I played at Festival Hall at, uh, for a bloke called Bruce Stewart, who's still around today. Bruce uh, still on radio, still here, there, and everywhere. And um, he he was very helpful to us and he thought we'd be very big but we weren't the phantoms didn't really go on with it but i finished my first show there and he came out with the money and the money was 12 pounds wow which was fantastic i bought my mum an iron an electric kettle an electric frying pan I could buy all those things with the twelve pounds, and you were living in Raglan Street at this Still point. Living in Raglan Street, yeah, in the in the flats. But you had a big breakthrough some time after that. There was a trio, wasn't yeah, there? Yeah. Give us though the acronym, or was it no the names? Yeah, it was MPD Limited, and out of the Phantoms, Peter Watson was the bass player, so he was the P. 
and we pinched Danny Finley. He was from a band called the Saxons, and the Saxons were a huge band in Melbourne. He was the, probably the world's best show drummer. He used to throw the sticks mm. in the air and all that stuff. So we formed that band, and Bruce Stewart spoke to a promoter who managed or owned Dick Lean. He owned the stadium or managed the stadium and said, could you get the the band um, MPD? They had never heard of this. He said, oh, okay. So we toured Australia with the Dave Clark Five, who wow. was a huge band, and the Seekers. It was there. Oh. It was there. What a funny combination. It was their return, triumphant return to Australia. And I've been friends remain good friends with all of the seekers since then they were very very kind judith durham could sing oh yeah what a, and what unique. year are we talking about here that, mpd yeah 65 i reckon 65 that would have been you're not even 20 at this stage not even near it yeah vietnam and all that to come after wow. that did we played uh, covers at first but then we started doing our own material and within two months of the band um forming we had a massive number one, which was Little Boy Sad. Yes. It was a huge hit. But but give us the first oh, a few lines. You've been lying, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, being untrue. That's my cat Cats singing along. Serenading yeah. the oh, chorus. Stinky. Stinky. I'm, I'm talking with Phil. Do you mind? Well, I remember that song. <laughs> I do. And the chorus, yeah. Little Boy Blue. <laughs> oh, there'll be so many people who remember that. Cat remembers it. You, Kat indeed, remembers it indeed. And so that was a big hit. Did you make a quid out of that? Oh, I'm sure it made a quid. It was a massive hit, but I don't know where the money went. So, is this was this a recurring theme in in the musical industry? People performing but getting dudded by managers or somewhere? Mm. Where did the mm. money go? It was. It wasn't um, universal, but it happened, and unfortunately, it happened to us. And um, we had a manager, but he deserted us when we went to England. We went to England to you know, become a success, and he left after three weeks. Um, and we were left on our own to try and make it in England. And the only trouble is there were about 3,000 other bands who'd already made it, including the Beatles and the Kinks and all these huge, you know, huge people. I've got to let the cat out. Yes. We'll pause while I, while I imagine you being as good as, big as, you're as good as, but as big as the Beatles. And so there you are on the road. Is it, is it lots of drinking, lots of girls? Were you doing drugs? No, no, never touched drugs. Really? Never touched drugs. Maybe I might have had a joint or a couple of joints in Vietnam when I went there later. But no, we weren't into drugs at all. The closest we came, somebody said, if you take half an aspirin and a bottle of Coke, it'll make you high. So we tried that and it did absolutely nothing, as you would imagine. Got rid of a headache. <laughs> But uh, no, we and girls, yeah. Look, we we um we had a few yeah girlfriends here and there. But I had a girlfriend by that stage by the time we were in England, and uh, she was back in Australia. Uh, but no, we were pretty quiet. I lived with my grandmother, um, and my auntie. So so there was a curfew at your place with the grandmother curfew or not? No, they were pretty good. They were pretty tolerant. <laughs> uh, but we weren't going out much. We were pretty lonely. We didn't have any money, so we couldn't buy a drink because um, all the money went into the trip. And then we came back to Australia to make our fortune again after about 12 months. And we did. We, made a, we did a really big tour, filled the coffers up. Of course, that all went too. So it was just a terrible time. Well, I heard an interesting story. 
a footballer by the name of Jason Love came from Port Melbourne and went to the AFL and he claims that you went out with his sister. Angela. Yes. I reckon her name was Angela. You're right. I don't think I went out with her, but I might have. I might have. <laughs> oh, well, she's family. laying claim to a night out with you. I don't know what a night out was. You might have just gone down to the hotel for a coffee or something. Well, I'll tell you, Phil, I was so bad at football, playing football. You know, the nuns used to coach us and a lady called Mrs Nichols. But um, my only claim to fame in football is there was a young boy in the grade. He was an Indigenous boy called Shane McHugh. Shane played for set went on to play for South Melbourne, but we were doing a Lightning Premiership. Remember those the Lightning yes, Premiership? Played in some of those. And uh, the strip that we had was very similar to the school we were playing against, which was Abbotsford. I think it was very similar. Anyway, the coach had been yelling at me, so I'm running after the ball, and I saw what I thought was another player from the other school running beside me. So I hear someone say, "Take him out!" So I gave him. A half a shirt front. We were only kids, and he went down like a ton of bricks. And the stand that was full of St Joey's supporters mm. all booed me. Why are they booing? I looked around at Shane McHugh, and he was on my side. <laughs> I wiped him out. And, and I was doing a thing in uh, Western Victoria not that many years ago, uh, probably about four or five years ago. And Shane came up and said hello. He was a, lovely, a really lovely person. Of course, I didn't even know. He was just a kid to me. I didn't know he was an Indigenous yeah, kid. Yeah. We had a lot of Indigenous kids in the Housing Commission flats, and they were just kids. There was no differentiation. So where was your next abode in Melbourne? after? You, and when did you leave home? Mm. Um, well, I ran away from home at one stage when I was 14 or 15. I'd had a big fight with my father. So we're talking the early 60s. Yeah, still the early 60s. And then I came back... Um, quite a bit later, um, I went to Vietnam when I was 19 as an entertainer and after about 10 months, I came back and I lived back at the Housing Commission flat with them um, and I'd met a girl then that was to be my wife and I didn't know that at the time, a beautiful girl and uh, she uh, and I, then I moved somewhere out her way. She lived in Strathmore, a bit up market, you know. Not far and, from uh, me in West yeah. Brunswick. So I moved to Kensington. So you could just about walk to Strathmore. And I did a few times. And she had a lovely family. Her father was wonderful. And I couldn't, I could barely read or write. So she was very brainy and she was going to university and all that stuff, teachers college. And uh, she helped me. She coached me. And uh, I picked up some of the, you know, three R's there. Just explain to me, reading and writing, why not? Oh, I had dyslexia. And in those days, I didn't know what it was. So I didn't recognise words. And, you know, there's a whole technical reason for it. And um, it was just very difficult. It was just very difficult for me. So during, in my last two or three years at school, I just did errands. So when, they, they, when, when you couldn't read... And the, pro the problem with people who can't read is they get really bullied. Sometimes. So you weren't writing then, but what about songs? You've got songs. Were you, were you penning songs? I really? Was, yeah, I was making up songs when I was very young. They weren't very good, but I was, uh, I was making them up and, uh, and I had to me rem memorise the words. Them. And that's why sometimes I can remember my yeah. memory, memory is so sharp on those days. I can tell you colours, the weather... I can tell you all sorts of things, and people argue with me and say you couldn't remember that, but it's true, I do. Yeah. And, and what what 
in the world of music inspired you? Any performers out there? I mean, the Beatles are out there, the Stones are out mm. there, there's blues. Mm. What inspired you? I had an uncle in England who played in a skiffle band. And for those younger listeners, that skiffle was like it was like a form of English country mm -hmm. music, hillbilly music, really, bluegrass. And Lonnie, Lonnie Donegan was the king of skiffle. Um, and he wrote a lot of good songs. And, uh, and so uh, my uncle took me to a couple of the dancers and he played a, a tea chest with a stick in it with a piece of string as bass. And I looked at this and I saw all the girls were staring at him and all the, uh, there were, and um, he met this lovely girl there on the night and, um, and then uh, somebody drove us home or we got the bus home or something. And I was only probably eight or nine, but I thought, how long has this been going on? You know, uh, so I often tell people, I said, what made you, what drove you to music? And I said, I got into music for the girls, not the money. <laughs> <laughs> That's not true. But anyway, he influenced me and he listened to a lot of American music. He listened to, didn't listen to Elvis that much, but Little Richard just absolutely set me alight. Buddy Holly, oh, I just loved Buddy Holly. Um, and of course, Little Richard and Buddy Holly were huge influences on bands like the Beatles and lots and lots of other bands. But I listened to that music, which I wouldn't have heard if it wasn't for my Uncle Brian. You've got a lovely um, tone in your voice, even um, trying to pick accent. It's kind of a mixed accent in a way. Mm. Is that a product of, the, of anything or is it just mm. because you've trained your voice in singing? I think I always spoke well, you know, not, not, not really, not like this, not like an, an announcer like you, Phil. But uh, no, I've always spoken well. I had an auntie who was a cockney, really. She was like, hello, Michael, how are you going? But she was amazing. She, on the female side, she had a degree. She got that in the 1940s, and that was rare. And she used to say to me, only two things you have to remember, Michael. Michael, she said, what you have to do is, you, you have to speak well, and you have to be polite. So I listened to her, and... When I came to Australia, because all the kids spoke like this, hey, yeah, hey, yeah, Mick, yeah, Mick, I became. That's that's Mick without a CK. G'day, Mick. And when I hear somebody yell that in Bay Street, Port Melbourne, I know they know me locally, Mick. So um, when I came to Australia, we had an elocution teacher called Miss Murray Smith. So did I. You're at, kidding me. At, not her, but when I was taught by an auntie, a crowl at St. Joseph's, and we did the how now, brown cow. Exactly, 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 yes. And the rain in Spain falls mainly on, on the plain. plain. So, but I used to, I, I could copy her. So I, she would say, uh, Michael, say um, say the, the, the how now, brown cow. And I go, how now, brown cow. And she said, and I was sending her up. And all the kids would laugh. That I could do it. And do you know what? It stuck with me. There are other sayings and expressions and clauses and phrases, but that stayed with me and it served me very well. And the politeness was my mother was very polite too. That's incredible. So tell us about your voice. Where does it sit in, in the pantheon of voices? Because it's powerful. Mm, it's very loud. <laughs> um, I did a bit of opera as a teenager with a wonderful Australian opera teacher and singer, Ormond Douglas. Mm -hmm. And we had a manager at the time 
who insisted that I do that, and I'm forever grateful to that man because he uh, he knew what he was doing. I can still sing now well into my 70s, and I can still hit a D above middle C in full voice. And that's unusual at, at this age because I was never really a tenor. Um, but I think it's because of those lessons of breathing, and you, you need to breathe and learn like a boxer. And I still, on occasions, um, have a... A, a, a brush up lesson on breathing because the breathing thing is what it's all about and a lot of singers who, who sound really like they've got big voices i won't name them but they've got tiny little voices because i sing up here <laughs> you can probably guess what i'm talking about but there's a, a few of them but they've got little voices yeah. i sing from down here. yeah and yeah. and uh but i don't think i'm a great singer i think i'm an adequate singer but i'm a good imitator I can imitate a lot of people. You have this rich musical history. I mean, people know there's it's it's eclectic in a way, and right up to the the, the anthem up there. Because Eileen, you've done others, of course. But but I look at this this album you did, Mike Brady Bloodlines, and I've been playing it at home, and you you produced this in Ireland, mm. and, and people like Steve Cooney involved. I mean, mm. he's legendary in mm. Ireland. Mm. Oh, tell there's us, a number tell of. Tell us uh, about why why you love doing this in Ireland. Well, there's a number of great Irish players, and Ireland is a wonderfully creative place. My word, it, it is really is extraordinary. And of course, they were put down so badly by the British as being heathens and primitive, but they weren't. They the culture was always very, very high. And I went there to visit my son. My son lives in Dublin, and I went to visit him, and he'd been there many years. And I just fell in love with the music. And I, I said to him, I'm going to come back. So I came back the same year. That was in like June or July. And in December, I was back there again. And this time I went on a, a big tour of Ireland, listening to lots of people and caught up with Steve Cooney, the great Australian-born Irishman now. He's an Irish national treasure. But um, And I, I, he said, I will do an album if you like, Mike. And so we decided, I wrote the songs, and they were really like country songs. But he helped me by uh, introducing me to a guy called Petro Rerder. And his father had introduced country, country um, traditional music back into Ireland when it was all show bands in the 50s. And he said to me, so you're another one who's come here with your European sensitivities and you want to write uh, an Irish, you want to record an Irish record. He said, well, you can't because it won't sound Irish. It doesn't matter if you've got Irish players, they'll just make it sound American because you're writing it as an American. And I thought, wow, he was really grumpy. But he, <laughs> he, I asked him about a couple of questions that really got to him. We were filming it and he, he said he'd give me 15 minutes. I got there at six o'clock at night and I left at 5.30 a.m. I had a master class. So I rewrote all the songs in more of a traditional Irish way. And I just must say, by coincidence, I'm out in Moreland and I was on a committee to change the name from Moreland, which is an old slave mm. name imposed on the place by a squatter who had a connection to a, a slave plantation. And it's now going to become Mary Beck, which mm. is beautiful. And and I was thinking, how interesting, how coincidental. You've got the William Buckley song. William Buckley, where are you? 
William Buckley, where are you? By the forest green and the ocean blue You'll not survive, you'll never cope William, you've got Buckley's hope People wonder, where did that expression come from? Tell us about the William Buckley song, why? Well, because he spent a lot of time here, I mean, he escaped from Sorrento, walked round the bay, yeah. did it very quickly, because he was six foot six, yeah. was a big man. Yeah, yeah. And the, the thing that I find, I think it is the most unbelievably brilliant story. 32 years <laughs> he lived under the care of the local indigenous people, the Wotherong mostly, and they looked after him. They they showed him how he'd survive because they thought he was one of their ancestors come back from the dead. And that he was white, massively tall, yeah. covered in skins. Yeah. So he was excused duties. Yeah. Um, and he met a, a, where we're sitting here, Phil. There's For the listeners, there's a beach about 50 metres away. And I believe that's where he met his wife, his Aboriginal wife, and she had been cast out. And uh, she, he met her sitting on this beach. A lot of people think it was the beach in Lawn, but I think it was the beach here. It's a story every Australian kid ought to know because it is truly remarkable how the Indigenous mm. people took him in. Mm. And it's true. <laughs> and they would have taken in Burke and Wills if they, Burke and Wills hadn't been so silly and they yeah. wouldn't have died. Yeah. They were very kind. They had a massive knowledge of the land. We're beginning to understand yeah. that now. Beginning. We're only at the 1% stage. And all it was really was missing, all that was really missing was respect. The, the white people that came here didn't respect them. That's all. It wasn't, a, it wasn't um, anything complicated it was well what was really complicated was the terrible massacres and things that happened but um this story is like robinson crusoe except one it's true yeah and and it, it takes place over 32 years when he gave himself up an indented head because the the locals told him that there's some white guys arrived on the beach he walked up to them and went he meant to say I'm William Buckley, I give myself up, and he worked, walked up, and my apologies to any Indigenous people, because I do not speak any dialect, but he walked up and went, well, he couldn't speak English. And also, Mike, you know, the two sons of a splitter, that's a beautiful piece of work too. Tell us about that song and where did that come from? Well, there's a grave by the side of the road near the Swing Bridge in Lawn, and it says... I'll paraphrase it. it two, two sons of a splitter drowned here what, in a quicksand wild at play and were buried the next morning. It's got their names. And no one ever stops because it's in a funny spot and it's so conspicuous, but no one ever looks at it. I used to walk. I still walk miles and miles. And I used to, I used to stay there and just look and just imagine what it must have been like. They were the only white inhabitants of Lawn. Mm. And what he did was he'd cut down trees... And then he'd split them. And the ships would come into lawn and they were easier to lift if they'd been split. And the two little boys drowned. And I imagined what it must have been like in that yeah. lonely, lonely place for that woman. And one of the lines is, um, they say that you can hear it on a cold and winter's night when all around is darkness and the day is given flight. Two sons of
And that's actually interesting, that song melodically, because that was a result of Pedro Herrera, because in some parts it's quite African yeah. and North African, um, the chant in the middle of it. And I personally think that that's where the spoken language of Ireland came from, was or was heavily influenced by North African um, Urdu, the language which actually came from China along the trade routes and then up into Ireland with the traders because some of the words are the same and I'm not the only one that thinks that. And the Otway Light, we should cite that one because everyone's known the word Otway, so tell <laughs> us about that. Oh, well, there, there's a place down here called the Eye of the Needle and it's the northern end of King Island um, where it is about a 64 mile opening where you can get a, a boat through it sounds like a lot 64 miles but when you've sailed all the way down pretty well to south america to get the roaring 40s near the falklands and then you turn and scream up through the icebergs up to australia that's like a needle you've got to thread that needle no radar no radio and a lot of ships went, the biggest shipwreck ever in Australia. In fact, I think it's the biggest loss of life. It was the Katariki that hit King Island and smashed into a million pieces. Um, but uh, I wrote a song about a letter I found in the library in, um, in Trinity College, in the library in, in Trinity College in London, uh, in London, in Dublin. Dublin. Oh, that was a 40 been thing. there to, yes, a lovely uh, college. Um, and uh, I, it said, Dear Mother, I, it was from, uh, from a boy from County Cavan, which is the home seat of the Bradys. In fact, two out of every three families are Bradys. The others are Murphys, and they say that the Murphys were the horse breeders and the Bradys were the horse stealers. Um, and he wrote, Dear Mother, I saw the sea today for the first time, and Lord, it was a sight. He said, The ship um, is ready, and the captain says, We'll sail at dawn tomorrow and if god's willing we'll find the otway light which had been built on cape otway so they could see there was a light on the end of king island which is pretty rough but they had a big light and i think it was the first lighthouse to be built in australia um and it certainly was one of significance and then of course they had something to aim for but you know what i have a theory another one of my theories i think a lot of the wrecks along here were the captains getting drunk because they were almost at port phillip but they still had the heads to get through, and a lot of them came to grief. And hundreds of ships, I still find pieces of ship swaps that were stuck on the beach. A lot of people do. And so let's go to up there, Kazali. Where did the idea come from? Was it a, was it a light bulb moment with your head on the <laughs> pillow or a glass of wine? Where? where? <laughs> no, I, I did a fair bit of work for a very good advertising agency, and they did fantastic work. But sometimes they went outside if it was an area not their expertise. So they came to me because they had Channel 7 as their client and Channel 7 had asked them to write, uh, come up with a football song because the year before, 1978, Come On Aussie, Come On for Packer and Channel 9 was a massive number one, you know. So never taking, taking a step back, I said, yeah, yeah, I can do that. I had no idea. So we sat down and we did have a beer we had a couple of beers in those days. Well, I got of, that much right. Of, yeah, a couple <laughs> of long long necks. And I said, you know, what we need really is a cat's cry. You know, something like that old expression, up there, Kazali. And one of them had 
fresh off the boat, Ronnie, who's a lifelong friend, and the other guy was Lionel, Lionel Hunt and, um, and Ronnie, and uh, they both said, uh, 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 Ronnie said, never heard of it. And, uh, and, and Lionel said, I've never heard of it either, but it sounds interesting. And their great skill was they didn't try and write the song. And that's what they were good at. They would get people in and instead of, that's been the bane of my life. I get an idea and people say, yes, we love that. Then they try mm, to write it themselves. I, I hate that. Um, it happens yeah. in... With, with, when you're writing, yeah. yeah. I don't like it. Uh, well, you probably feel the same as me about yeah. editors. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, so I went home um, Drove home. Uh, I, I was. I might have been over the limit in those days. It was. <laughs> it was socially acceptable. That's a great. Uh, we made some great progress in that area. I can tell you. But uh, I got up at five o'clock, which was my want in those days. Wrote about four or five different jingles, maybe more, and then the couriers would arrive about eight o'clock in the morning, and they take them to the various places. And this one for Campaign Palace was the name of the company. I wrote, "Dear Lionel." I would like to retain all rights in this song other than for the promotion of football on Channel 7 because I thought it had just something in you, it. Um, you then, twigged. You yeah, twigged. Yeah, yeah. So then we went and did an ad. I went and did it with Peter Sullivan who did all my commercials and I came up with a pseudonym. I called it the two-man band. A lot of people think the two-man band existed as a band, but it didn't. Um, but Peter did a great job of the arrangement, did the wonderful key change in it, played on it, the two of us played on it. And we sent it off and they loved it, started playing it on the radio, uh, on the television. And then Keith McGowan, the late Keith McGowan, started playing it and Ron... I said to Ron Tudor, I called him and I said, we need to do a longer version of this because I think we can sell seven or 8,000 records. Well, we ended up selling hundreds of thousands of records. It sold a quarter of a million records and My Sharona, My Sharona, which is a pretty good rock song. Yeah, yeah. Um, that sold 43,000 up, up there because 80 sold you know, 246,000 just in its first run. Um, but the... A number of the charts kept it at number two. I don't think it made number one on Countdown because it was considered to be a bit of a novelty song, you know. Now it's not considered a novelty song. It's in the archives now, National yeah, Archives. Yeah. It's considered a modern folk song. But um, the next year I had a little recording company and the very first release was was that I did was by a guy called Joe Dolce yes. who had a massive hit in Australia with Shut Up Your Face, but yeah. it went worldwide. So yeah. it sold millions and millions but of that's your records. song? Well, I managed the song, the copyright in the work, which is the writing, and I managed the master recording for Joe to this day. Give us the first three lines. What's the matter, you? Hey, God, and no respect. That's the... That's the um, and it went... Number one? Number one everywhere, um, except for America, where it's old enough to be number one, but the same thing happened again. They didn't want a novelty song as number one at that stage. Um, when I was a boy, just about to eighth grade, Mama used to say, not to stay out late with a little girl, something, da, 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 da. oh, shut up your face. <laughs> shut up your face. We all remember that. It was a great <laughs> hit. It was such fun, and it was a bit of, it was a bit of laughter and a bit of, 
I, I still love it. I think it's, it's people say it's politically incorrect now, and I say, well, do you know one of the only countries in the world where it wasn't number one was in Italy. They thought it was a documentary. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't. Uh, it didn't equate with Italian humour. And what about music now? Where are you going with your music? Well, I still write. I'm, I'm probably much more towards folk music now. Um, if I write a football song, which I've just written a new football song, it's the country football. So yeah, let's talk yeah. about that in a minute. Yeah, but that's it's. I write more, I suppose, folky, because you know, at my age, it's not it's not great writing about unrequited love. It has to be quite reflective. Although I do occasionally on the Irish album, there's one love song. It's a very sad one, too. It's about a a girl um, who passed away many years ago, but. Um, so I write things that are probably more philosophical um, and hopefully have a message. I like writing stories, um, whereas you know, sex drives a lot of music. Um, a lot of modern music, uh, rap and all that stuff is about you know um, love, and although it's not, it's unrecognisable sometimes. But um, but I, I still write in a documentary sense. I still love to write songs about um, you know songs about here. Or the beautiful places or experiences. So you have this long musical history, but overwhelmingly you're known for that song up there, Kazali. Does it frustrate you sometimes, or do you just take it as so be it? I've had to take it as so be it, but it's a great question, Phil. You know, everybody, when you interview people, they always say, oh, that's a great question, which is supposed to flatter <laughs> you. But I'm not trying to flatter you because it is a great question. Uh, it's been, it has been frustrating. It's been very frustrating. I find it difficult. I sing all sorts of stuff. I and sing, you've made jingles everywhere. Oh, I've done, I've done every jingle known to man for just about every, every product in the country. But I... I I, th I find it frustrating that I'm only known as a one-trick pony mm. and I find it very hard to get on gigs. You know, I've, I've had a rock and roll band for 22, 23 years um, playing originals and, and covers. I've done rock albums. Um, <clears throat> I'm known as a rock singer by people in the trade. The trade, know me, everybody else knows me as, yeah, with like a bit of an Australian accent singing a few Australian songs. <laughs> well, it's interesting we've had legendary overseas bands come to Australia mm. and be derided, mm. but you haven't been. Mm. It, overwhelmingly, people love your rendition, don't they? Am I right in thinking that? Oh, up there because 80, they do. Uh, but that's that's the grand final audience, and it's very hard with 100,000 people who are there not to see you to please everyone. And I think I probably go a fair way, mm. um, but there's still some people that wouldn't like it. Probably. Well, Meatloaf were kind, but I suppose that could have been partly the acoustics and reverberations and stuff. Just tell us on day. that. Did he have a bad day? I think so. Yeah, something went wrong. And um, I think there's more to that story than meets the eye. Like he wasn't well at the time? Uh, he probably wasn't well. He didn't look well. No. Not with us anymore. But I think... Um, he it wasn't the only show that put it this way that people have been unhappy with at the time. I think there's a, a much deeper story. He became meatloaf um, by a, a record producer writing an album and looking for a song they, he cast for a mm. singer, and he fit the bill, but he couldn't sing it at first, and um, and uh, they gave him six or seven months to have lessons 
get his throat right and all that stuff. So I think he struggled with singing. But having said that, you know, um, he's done plenty of did plenty of good live shows. I feel a bit sorry for him, as I do with Maruchi Baramba, you know, the Aboriginal woman mm. who's a very, very good opera singer, but she got it wrong on the day. And it probably wasn't her fault. She couldn't hear mm. the backing track and she couldn't get in time with it. And uh, she's a fine singer. I remember I sang with her in the centenary and I remember talking to her about it and and she wasn't something that she likes to talk about, but she spoke to me about it because I was empathetic and sympathetic. It's not an easy thing to do. So let's go there. You walk up to the stage, 100,000 people, biggest day in Australian sport, and you're there to do this anthem that you're famous for. Do you get nervous? And, and tell us, was there one performance that was best and was there one that wasn't as good as you wanted? <laughs> Uh, look, um, there was one, and that was the first one. They didn't. The PA was those metal tannoy horns. It must have sounded terrible, um, but it was such a thrill to be out there. You know, I'd been in Australia twenty years at that point in time. So, what are we talking? Oh, the seventies, seventy nine, late seventy nine, seventy nine. Yeah. Well, can I just pause there and say I got married on that day, grand final day, the day you did your first up there, Kazali. You didn't, po didn't postpone it to come and see me? <laughs> no, I'm sorry. <laughs> My parents were there watching you, though. They had to rush to the wedding and they were late. Anyway, Parkville. <laughs> but go on. Oh, that's gorgeous. So that was that to me was just a wonderful, you know, I remember the people saying, good on you, Mike, and I really felt that I belonged. Um, there's been plenty. There have been a few close shaves. Like one year they started the tape that I was singing live to a, a bit late and I had to guess where I was in the song. But, you know, I'd already made my mind up because I don't get nerves now that I was going to stop it. If, it, if I couldn't get in, I was going to say, let's do that again. Let's start again. Um, because you can't find a part in the song if you don't hear the beginning of it. Um, there have been times when they forgot to turn the microphone on to the broadcasters. <laughs> and so the broadcasters, you know, the, the first one back, I think, in 2012 or 2013, you could hear me and everybody could hear me at the ground but the thing that went to air was the ambient sound, so it was very quiet. It's on, it's on the internet. You can barely hear this voice in the background. But you know what? I just lay back and enjoy it. I'm very relaxed usually. Um, I've already done about five, maybe six or seven shows in the morning before I get there. Yeah. Um, I, don't, um, I don't, you know, get – I have a little room somewhere, which is nice. For a long time they used to give me a toilet with a wet floor, but now – um, and the headline acts get, you know, treated differently, but that's – I'm happy with the treatment. So tell me, when you get there for, for your performance, uh, there are these big headline acts historically. Do you get to meet the people? Um, I have on occasions. And do um, you enjoy it and do they acknowledge who you are? Uh, there was one year I wanted a towel because I wanted to have a shower and I didn't have any towels or anything like that and they came in with a – something that people have been rubbing people down with for about two years. It had been white once, but it was like a cross between brown and navy blue. They'd been rubbing <laughs> rubbing someone down with it, probably Hawthorne and, and, and blues players. But um, I thought, no, I'm going to go and get one. So I marched down. I knew where the Tom Jones and Ed Sheeran area was. So I walked in because I knew they'd have towels and everything there. 
And I walked over to this pile of towels and as I grabbed a couple of towels, this voice boomed out, Oi, what are you doing? And I looked round and it was a bloke who it turned out to be was Tom Jones' manager. <laughs> and he said, come here, come here. I thought, oh, I've gone here. I'm going to be... And he said, Tom, come over here, come over here. And Tom came over and he said, um, oh, sorry, his manager said, you're the guy with the big voice. And I said, no, he's the guy with the big voice. And Tom laughed. And he said, we were there yesterday when we had technical problems at the rehearsal. And he said, I was sitting behind you and you didn't see me. He said, but I know what you were going through. And they didn't fix it, did they? I said, no, we came back that night and fixed the technical problem. He said, I'm glad you did because I would have got it too. Um, so he was lovely. But you know what? He was strangely on edge. I don't know what I could call it nervous, but, you know, he's there in front of 100,000 people. He doesn't know anything about the game. Um, and he didn't, uh, and he was wringing his hands a bit. He looked a bit nervous, mm. and uh, mm. and I said, "Are you are you nervy?" He said, "Oh no, I I'm always anxious before a show." Good so luck. it was pretty good. Yeah. So over this journey of about seventy four years, you are at about seventy four in the met, shade. You, you've met born in forty eight. Yep. You've met every man and his dog. <laughs> Who have been the most significant characters you've met? Give us a couple that you've either loved or admired. Um, well, that's interesting. Yeah, the, there's. I've worked with a lot of great artists. Um, some I won't name become quite affected by their fame. Yes, in a negative sense. It's not their fault. It's just that they're pampered. Um, I've worked with a lot of people like Sammy Davis through a very bad period of his life. And uh, he rang me one night at about four in the morning from a film shoot in Los Angeles where he couldn't work out the timing that I'd put. And my wife answered the phone and she thought it was my friend Wayne. She said, Wayne, he's in bed, he's had a huge day and he's got to start early. Will you go away, please? And hung up and I said, darling, who was that? She Sorry, said, just pause. This is the Sammy, the Davis, Sammy Davis. The Sammy yeah. Davis. And I, she said... Oh, it's Wayne pretending that he's Sammy Davis. I went, oh, okay. Oh, what? And, of course, she'd hung up on him, so we didn't have a number. We couldn't dial back. Um, you know, luckily, he rang back, and, and we sorted that out. But um, And he gave me a pretty hard time, but I ran into him some years later accidentally, and he um, was contrite about what had happened. And I thought, you're a bigger man than I thought of you at the time. I didn't like him. But I turned out to I liked him really well. Worked with Lorne Green, who was uh, you know the Bonanza. Yeah, he was lovely. Um, I made a mistake though. I asked him how he was, and he was into this massive health kick of all these different things that he did. And two hours later, I was still listening to all the things that he was telling me. Um, but he loved a natter, um, and we did. And I'll never forget because it was at the Shrine Theatre, which in those days was the biggest theatre in Los Angeles, and I, because of flights, had missed the rehearsal. So my job was open the show and then say, ladies and gentlemen, would you please welcome to the stage your host for this this evening, Mr. Lorne Green. And, of course, I threw my arm out that way, thinking that's where he was going to be, and he wasn't there. So I went, Mr. Lorne Green. I went to the left then, stage left, and he wasn't there. And I hear the band playing, and, I, and he says, I'm behind you, Mike. And he'd walk down these steps. 
He walked out, and I got the giggles. I I was very nervous, but I I get the giggles. Um, I've worked and met lots of people um, over the years. Some haven't impressed me, and some have. Um, I had a long interview with Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys, which people said you won't get a long interview out of him, but I did, um, of course, when I was on radio. Um, and I've worked and been friends with a lot of well-known Australian acts who, you know, I mean, John Farnham is one who has had a massive career and I've known him really since he was very young. We still speak on occasions just to say good day. You know. And have you got grand final day this year? Are you booked? I'm, I'm booked, but I haven't been told. We, it always happens like this. I've been told, oh, you're doing it, but it's not, you know, there's no contract or there's no... So I'm hoping that in the next week or so... I find out exactly what they want me to do. So we'd expect you'd get a good quid for performing that on grand final day, wouldn't you? Uh, you would. You'd expect that, yes. Um, <laughs> look, it's a good payday, but to be really honest, the the headliners, um, you know, I mean, the speculation because it's a secret anyway, and I don't know, but I've got a fairly big idea. I wouldn't mind getting a quarter of the lowest paid headliner they've ever had, though. Um <laughs> That would be funny. Uh, a, a quarter would be fine. Maybe an, an eighth would be fine. Um, uh, 8%. Let, let me make a call to Gil <laughs> before he leaves. I, I did talk to him by text the other week, so I could almost say we're on good terms, Mike. And I could say, my friend Mike Brady and I would like to have a chat with you. So let's say... I still love to do it, Phil. I, yeah, I still love to do it. Cool. So two, two little final questions. The best gig you've ever done. Wow, some of them are small. Yeah, you know? I, I'm, I'm happy to hear a, yeah. a little gig somewhere yeah. in the back blocks or anywhere. Yeah. A, a good gig is one where they are still yelling as you leave. Yeah, I think a lot of those are in MPD days. Yeah, um, because we'd only do twenty minutes because they hadn't had enough. Wow, but we'd put a lot of energy into that. And sometimes there was one we were, we toured with the Easy Beats, Normie Rowe. Um, Bobby and Laurie and us. That's name-dropping. And, uh, and, and it was at the Brisbane Festival Hall and we closed the first half. We, we'd swap it round. Sometimes we close the end, but Normie always finished the end. But the, the easy bits were on after us, but there was going to be an interval. So we, always, we, were, we were very friendly with the easy bits, but we were very competitive. So we just wanted to shut the show down. So we did this massive show and the kids went wild. So when the interval came, there were kids running around. So the police shut the show down and there was a riot outside so we couldn't get out. So I thought, yeah, that's, that's I mean, <laughs> pretty irresponsible. We didn't know it was going to turn out like that, but cars were turned so, over. So it's one of the best gigs in terms of the enthusiasm of the, the audience and whipping, the crowd. Whipping the audience up into a frenzy. Wow. Um, I think. But I think the other ones have been um, big stadiums, you know. Um, the opening of Stadium Australia was wonderful. There was 120,000 there. Um, some of the Maya Music Bowl things we did in those days. And the tour with the, with the, uh, with the Seekers, they were, they were huge stars. And I'll never forget how nice they were to us. And that's how we became, we became friends. But, you know, there's lots of people I've forgotten about. I mean, I worked with pretty well most of the big names that are still around in the 60s. I still, I'm doing a show with Normie Rowe uh, in August. Um, 
Digger Ravel, I still see. People wouldn't even heard of Digger Ravel well, now. I mean, as you step, I asked you earlier, but as you step to the stage, that adrenaline rush you'd have, no doubt. And and you've got a presence. You're you're, you know, a man of stature. You've got lovely grey hair. You look good. So then you bond. Yeah. Do you feel good? You you feel good about this and commanding? Uh, yeah, I feel I feel comfortable in my skin. I wasn't always. I I hated the way I looked. I hated the way I looked in the mirror yeah. as a kid. And uh, now I've just I reckon that um, I'm looking. I mean, I'm really like a dinosaur of uh, the rock business, but I reckon I'm all right. I reckon I can still hold a note, yeah. and I'll keep doing it while I can still hold a note. And I'm eternally grateful for the AFL getting me back after a 12-year layoff. And it was a great thing to have happened uh, at this stage of my life because now young people know me as well, not just the older people. I was a memory for older people now. Little kids recognise me. And that's a segue to virtually the last question, which is the latest song you've done, which is about suburban country football. Mm. So we've done the big end of town, the mm. AFL, and now we're looking at country football. And there's a couple of great lines in there. Tell us about the song. I've always liked um, country footy and suburban footy. I don't really differentiate them that much. But country footy is a huge and important part of the community. As, and you'd know more about suburban football yeah. than I am, as is suburban. And I wrote it as a tribute, and, and this is not a commercial, I don't, I mean, it's on it's on YouTube. I mean, people can get it and download it. I mean, it's not, um, or stream it or whatever they do. Um, but it's not to make money. It's just me taking my hat off along with uh, Fox Footy and, uh, and the Carlton Draft, which is that where they put player a retired recently retired player in with the countryside which is a great idea so all that experience and all that knowledge gets it's a great idea and I, I love the idea so i wrote it and approached them and they said yeah we'll support it so and the words are um he said as he looked at his computer it's the game we've played around here since adam was a lad we've seen the champions come and go we've known the good and bad we remember those who went to town to mix it with the best. But we love the ones who stayed behind to stand out from the rest and the choruses. That's what country footy means to all of us that know. It's a big part of our lives, the weekly ebb and flow. And there's nothing like a local game to let your spirits flow. With the engine room of Aussie rules is the reason that we go. And it talks about grassroots and playing on Saturdays and... It reminds me of a little gig I did. I was alongside the late Danny Frawley oh, and he right, was talking right. about playing football and, of course, all the uncles are playing. So he's a kid and he's about 14, 15, playing in the seniors and playing against the uncles. And this, of course, was in his community at Bungaree and it was pretty willing. And he painted a beautiful picture of local football and the importance of those communities to the big game. Well, they are very important. They've been a great nursery for development of football. And more even importantly than that, they mean a lot to the communities. Yeah. You know, from whether you're in Patchy Wallach yeah. or, you know, Omeo, it, it's a wonderful thing. And it's one of the great things about our game that it's played at that level. It's not an elite level, but it's pretty good. And uh, there's a lot of heart and a lot of love and a lot of passion 
And uh, that's really what the song's about. And finally, what can we expect from Mike Brady as his voice simply gets better and better <laughs> in maturity? <laughs> well, I'm sort of determined to do an aria and I've got a friend who's a conductor and we've been working on it. I'd, I'd like to make a statement to say, well, look, you've been listening to me for years and years, but I actually do more than sing football songs. Fo football songs have been kind to me and I love them. One day in September and all those things. And I love doing them. I love singing them. I love how happy it makes people feel. But I also love other songs and not necessarily the ones I've written, but ones that other people have written as well, um, locally and uh, OS. I'm not that fussy, but, you know, we've got great songwriting skills in this country and I would love to see the day where they are recognised not as, oh, good for an Australian act, you know, we we founded um, pub rock. It started mm. in Australia. All the music that is around today goes back to the founders of that music who were getting like a pound a night mm. and all that stuff. It's a, it's a really important thing. We've got to support our local talent and uh, sport's a good way of getting it through. Sport and music go hand in hand. I bet you used to sing songs to yourself. Oh, yes, and we had the the dance nights at the Coburg Town <laughs> Hall, of course, and famous bands there. Mike Brady, it's been great experience to travel down the Great Ocean Road to Wye River, where I have a cabin in the Big Four camping grounds. What a beautiful yarn, and stay well. Oh, thank you, Phil. It's been great to see you too, and... I'll see you from time to time. You know where I am now, just call in for a coffee anytime. <laughs> okay, <laughs> with all those other admirers who knock on your door wanting you to record one of their songs, correct? <laughs> yes, I'll record one of yours if you okay. like. Okay, <laughs> good work, Mike Brady. Mike Brady, beautiful work in Y River.